This is the current federal tax developments for the week of March the 27th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week from Phoenix, I'm going to be talking to you about some of the things that have happened in taxes. That will include the fact that the IRS has yet again, this time leading off its dirty dozen 2023 tax scams, highlighted issues with employee retention credit scams. So apparently this is one we just keep revisiting. We had the week before have the IRS issued a separate press release on the item and also the OPR indicating some responsibilities of tax practitioners. Now we again have the IRS coming back in this. So I guess we can take it. They're trying to send a message of some sort. We also had released this week an IRS guidance on how we should classify a non-fungible token, NFT. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, if you don't know what one is, we'll try to quickly explain what one is. Uh, and then we'll talk about why this is an issue and what the IRS is planning to do with it. The bottom line, for those of you that understand it, uh, the IRS is looking at classifying a large class of these NFTs as collectibles, which would strictly limit their ability or basically eliminate to a large extent their ability to hold these in retirement accounts. Finally, next we'll talk about the fact, not finally, but this is one next to last. I'm going to talk about a court case that deals with an issue, well, a couple of issues, one of which we see quite often where a taxpayer will attempt to claim expenses in an entity that they have formed for business, but where the entity didn't pay the expenses, and that'll be a problem here, as well as the more general problem of what happens when you try to claim a home office expense when you've decided to incorporate your business. We'll talk a little bit about those issues. Finally, we're going to have a very, very short, shortest uh, guidance I've ever actually dealt with on this program, but a very short piece of guidance that reminds about something important about the Bipartisan Budget Act audit regime for partnerships. And we'll discuss that uh, when we get to that. So let's start with the IRS's opening up with the annual Dirty Dozen tax schemes. And when they do this every year, they basically list, as you might guess, dirty dozen means we're going to list 12, 12 potential tax scams that are going on. Now, this week they begin and they kind of start with the top one and work their way down. And this week they decided to pick out as a top one, which is interesting because everything else was generally dealing with what we might call security related scams, people trying to steal taxpayer data or get other information out of taxpayers. And rather, the first one, though, deals again with the employee retention credit claims. And the IRS, yet again, I guess this time the new commissioner got to put his name on the uh, press release that came out, the news release that came out. They're going to talk about them as being, in this case, to the IRS's view, the number one scam in taxes for 2023. As I stated, we already just kind of started off this announcement. Again, the IRS is doing these. We're going to have all 12 of these come up. You can see them, they're published every year, and they're the IRS's attempt to bring to light some problems that taxpayers may be running into that they may not recognize as scam situations that, you know, to protect them or to at least keep them from doing things that might end up being more out there in left field than they may have been aware of. Now, the number one, as I said, relates to what the IRS's favorite tax complaint recently has been, the employee retention credit, and you know, basically aggressive claims in that area. And that's been a major issue. Now, as I noted, they'd already posted warnings the previous week 
uh, one to practitioners who are involved in any way, shape or form with clients that are claiming the credit and the other side of it related directly to the businesses and taxpayers that are receiving these promotions about applying for huge amounts of employee retention credit money. Okay. So that's the background here. Now, I should say, having been involved with the employee retention credit uh, since the end of 2020, actually, we kind of talked about it in 2020 in March when we first had the CARES Act passed. But honestly, at that time, because you couldn't claim the ERC if you even applied for a payroll protection program loan, pretty much there was no interest whatsoever, I found, from virtually anybody taking courses at that point in time. There were a few people, I talked with a few other instructors, and we talked about situations where maybe that'd be a better deal, but it seemed a bit more speculative. The uh, Paycheck Protection Program loan certainly seemed like more of a, uh, a sure thing that we knew it was going to happen there and we didn't have to worry about how quickly the business might be able to recover and how various other things would happen. So for various reasons, didn't really do much until the end of December when Congress changed their mind entirely and decided that, oh, well, even though you have gotten a Paycheck Protection Program loan, we're going to let you qualify for the ERC so long as you don't use the same wages to get out of your employee retention credit, you know, basically apply the same wages for the ERC that you have applied to get forgiveness for your PPP loan. And that opened up the floodgates. Of course, this was late in the game. It was retroactive, which meant that nobody had filed for 2020 on their 941 at least no small organization had. And it was not going to be terribly likely as late as it came out that much was going to get out and known by most of the employers until maybe the second quarter, 941, especially as late as the IRS came out with guidance. So bottom line, this has always been, for the vast majority of smaller taxpayers at least, a credit that's been done on a claim for refund. And as we are aware, it has attracted a lot of shall we say, less than reputable uh, promotions in your mailbox. And by less than reputable, I mean it's not that everybody telling you about the ERC is a scammer, but there certainly are scammers in the mix, shall we say. People out there doing stuff that are doing very little work and are just a, basically, it's the throw mud at a wall and see what sticks approach to doing this. And the problem with that is if you are a taxpayer whose mud didn't stick, uh, you could end up in trouble with the IRS. And while the, all of these organizations claim that they will, oh, they'll, they'll provide you audit protection. The problem is, if you start thinking about it, wait, the, if they're making, if they're specialists and they're really only making money doing ERC claims at this point, and that's what a lot will tell you they're doing, they're specialists, they're in this area, that's what we do, that's why you should trust us. The problem is their money should be drying up here. At some point, they're going to run out of people who can file claims for refund. In fact, we would expect that. You know, we don't know the absolute last day to file a claim for refund is going to come in 2024 for the uh, 2020 ones and 2025 for the 2021 version. But the reality is that, you know, given how many people have been bombarded with these uh, marketing schemes and how many people have been involved, I can't imagine there are many businesses that aren't aware of the ERC and have not effectively already made up their mind about what they're going to do. And that causes me some problem about this audit protection because the problem is going to be, what is this company going to have for revenue when the audits start coming up? I mean, it's one thing if you had an organization, let's say your local, you know, your CPA firm 
handle the claim and they do all kinds of other things. Yes, they could conceivably provide you with audit representation. And maybe we could say that was acceptable. It gets into whole kinds of other issues uh, in terms of various potential penalty arrangements when you're protected that way, but let's ignore that. But the real problem is, I just think that there's gonna be way too often that if a client does get examined on one of these claims, it was put together by a promoter, that when they go to actually get the audit representation, they're going to discover, well, we can't find the person now. Where are they? You know, there'll be things missing. Uh, just mechanically, you know, the business, the corporation will have gone under. It's bankrupt now because there's nothing there. There's no revenue coming in. So it's always maybe a little bit iffy about that. You know, why in the world we need that? Okay. This is what the IRS tells us. It talks about this. It talks about the basic background of the dirty dozen list of campaigns. This is from the news release. They spotlighted, in, you know, from the start of the annual dirty dozen list of tax scams, they spotted ERC credits following blatant attempts by promoters to con ineligible people to claim the credit. That's somewhat strong language. Renewing several earlier alerts, they highlighted schemes from promoters who have been blasting ads on radio and the internet touting refunds involving employee retention credits, also known as ERCs. These promotions can be based on inaccurate information related to eligibility for and computation of the credit. Now, I should say, clearly, not all ERC claims are invalid. Uh, clearly, there are valid claims. And I'll be honest, there are companies that probably, at this point, qualify for the ERC, but haven't ever filed for it because they have a misunderstanding of what would qualify. For instance, I've heard way too many CPAs say, well, obviously they don't qualify because the revenue went never went down. Well, the revenue never going down, yeah, that, that is one and probably the best way to qualify because you always get an extra quarter if you do that. I'll phrase it, that's always the one you'd like to go under. But there are ways to qualify if you've had what's called a full or partial shutdown that do not look at revenue. Now, you do have to show there is a more than nominal impact on the business, at least in terms of the IRS, because again, my theory is the word shutdown even partial shutdown implies something more than a mere inconvenience. You know, it's like shutdown's a rather strong word. So it seems like it needs to be more than merely inconvenient. And as I tell people, it might be nice to have a drop in revenue. It, it might be that the IRS might try to argue if your revenue went up three times in the interim, you know, you tripled your revenue during the pandemic, that arguably it didn't appear that the restrictions had that big an impact on you. You've been more profitable, have more revenue, Seems like it's a problem, but at least in theory, it's covered. And in fact, the way the IRS phrased it for restaurants, it appears that a lot of restaurants, even if they absolutely did a killing in terms of selling via drive-through or let's say takeout delivery, you know, they absolutely made up for anything lost within, in basically in restaurant dining with that kind of uh, situation, like a lot of fast food restaurants did. It appears they still qualified because the IRS seems to just say, oh yeah, shutting down your in-room dining as long as more than 10% of revenue back in 2019, oh, that, that's, a, you know, that, that's considered to be you know, a significant, you know, basically, or let's say that's considered to be a partial suspension of the business. And it's like, okay, you, know, you go down that path. But that said, any scenario where everybody qualifies also is clearly wrong. That one I'll say before anybody says. So hopefully your, you know, your person can tell you who wouldn't qualify. That's probably the most important thing to know. 
Now, we quote the new commercial, Dan the new commissioner, not commercial, commissioner, Danny Warfeld, as saying the aggressive marketing of these credits is deeply troubling and a major concern for the IRS. He continues, business need to think twice before filing a claim for these credits. While the credits provide financial lifeline to millions of businesses, there are promoters misleading people and businesses into thinking they can claim these credits. There are very specific guidelines around these pandemic era credits. They are not available to just anyone. People should remember the IRS is actively auditing and conducting criminal investigations related to these false claims. Okay, that's, let's say that's a threat. We urge honest taxpayers not to be caught up in these schemes. The IRS continues on from the commissioner, notes that businesses should be wary of advertised schemes and direct solicitations promising tax savings that are too good to be true. They should listen to the advice of their trusted tax professionals. Taxpayers should remember they are always responsible for the information contained for on their tax returns. Improperly claiming this credit could result in taxpayer having to repay the credit along with potential penalties and interest. So reminding everybody that just because somebody told you you could claim this credit, that's not going to somehow insulate you from having to pay it back and it's not going to insulate you from getting stuck with penalties and interest after having to pay the credit back. So that is something that everybody needs to be aware of, you know, and a lot of taxpayers think not. But that's how it goes. Now, they go on to say the IRS is stepping up enforcement action involving these claims and people considering filing for these claims only valid during the pandemic for a limited group of businesses should be aware they are ultimately responsible for the accuracy of the information on the return. The IRS Small Business Self-Employed Division has trained auditors examining these types of claims and now bring out the, you know, the threat the guys with the guns and badges, the IRS Criminal Investigation Division is on the lookout for promoters of fraudulent claims for credits. Third-party promoters of the ERC often don't accurately explain eligibility for and computation of the credit. I, I can say that one for sure. I've actually seen that with people where they give vague descriptions of who will qualify and virtually invite the taxpayer to say, oh, well, I, I qualify. You know, and the promoter is set them up and it's clear perfectly be able to say, well, we just rely on the fact they told us you, they qualified. You know, we, we, we didn't actually, you know, no, no, no. We, we were never hired to figure out if they qualified. We, we just asked them if they did. And all we were doing was helping them prepare the forms. Yeah, that could be a problem. They note some of the things we hear from promoters that make broad arguments suggesting all employers are eligible without evaluating an employer's individual circumstances. That's huge. Any good study should be dealing, spend a lot of time in detail looking at specific taxpayer circumstances and fully understanding their business. If you're going to claim partial suspension, I mean, the revenue side, yes, we, we can just look at gross receipts. But if you're going to claim partial suspension, you have got to fully understand the client's business and the direct nature of the impact. For example, they go on to say only recovery start businesses are eligible for the ERC in the fourth quarter of 2021, but these third-party promoters failed to explain this limitation. Right. In addition, some third parties do not inform employers they cannot claim ERC on wages that were reported as payroll costs in obtaining payroll protection program loan forgiveness. That whole area of integrating with the PPP loan is a complex one. And again, if your promoter never mentioned anything about that, you, you're in big trouble. <laughs> I'll just phrase it this way. If they didn't mention that, they, didn't, they, pro they have a high, 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 high probability of having left out other important details and you, nice client, are hung out to dry. Because that detail definitely should have been mentioned. That one's not even close. 
and, but it is complicated and messy. And really, in a best situation with, client, with people I know who are doing this back before the promoters showed up and were actually working with clients, part of the deal there was to help them apply for the ER, apply for PP loan forgiveness in such a way to minimize the loss of the ERC. And there was actually a real interesting way, to, you know, there, there were a lot of things you could do there. And these promoters arrived after all that was done. So that's also a problem. Very few of the promoters were involved in the ER, in the PPP loan application or PPP loan forgiveness. And at the very least, they should have asked if you've already applied for forgiveness. And even if you have, they should have asked for the details of it. Because even if you've applied, there are some ways if you put too much, you put excess expenses on there just to make darn sure you qualified for forgiveness. We are allowed to take some of those expenses off. And what we're going to want to try to do is rescue wages. So that was always a big problem. Additionally, some of these advertisements exist solely to collect the taxpayer's personal identical information in exchange for false promises. Because yes, you're going to tell these people everything about you, including giving all your employees like names, ID numbers, you're going to get them into your payroll records. You're going to get your business details. You're going to get all kinds of stuff there. And if you're just trusting somebody that randomly emailed you, well, don't be surprised if that somehow doesn't always work out well. Okay, the IRS reminds all taxpayers that willful filing of false information and fraudulent tax forms can lead to serious civil and criminal penalties. Have you gotten the hint yet? You know, that it's like, yeah, penalties, penalties, including criminal. Eligible taxpayers can claim the ERC on original amended payroll tax returns for qualified wages paid between March 13, 2020 and December 31, 2021. However, to be eligible, the employees must have suspended, sustained a full or partial suspension of operations due to orders from an appropriate government authority limiting commerce, travel, or group meetings because of COVID-19. The action has to have been tied, the order has been tied to COVID-19 during 2020 or the first three quarters of 21. Second, they can qualify separately if they experience a significant decline in gross receipts during 2020. That was a 50% drop uh, from the quarter in 20 to the same quarter in 19, or a decline in gross receipts in the first three quarters of 21. In that case, we're looking at a decline of 20% from the quarter in 2021, normally to the quarter in 19, or a 20% drop in the immediately preceding quarter compared to the same quarter in 19. That was the other way in there, or your recovery startup business for the third and fourth quarter of 21. And again, if that one is not one we usually see the promoters pushing, because that one has a maximum credit for the employer of 50 grand. And these guys generally don't consider 50 grand worth spending their time on, right? In essence, they're looking for their 20% of a, you know, preferably seven figure refund claim, not 20% of 50 grand. 10 grand is not worth their trouble. That's the way it kind of works in many cases. Okay, next up, the IRS issued a notice that's going to treat some non-fungible tokens as collectibles. This is a 2023-27 issued on the 21st of March. Now, if you don't know what a non-fungible token is, okay, um, fungible means, of course, that things can be substituted for one another, right? So, like, dollars are considered fungible. You know, dollars are considered fungible. You know, a dollar I have here in my wallet today, I can exchange that, you know, for a dollar that you have in your wallet. We could trade those, and there's no real difference. We haven't changed anything. They're totally sub. We can substitute them at will. 
a non-fungible, and a, so let's say, and Bitcoin is also a fungible, in this case, a token on the blockchain. So it's a token, but basically every Bitcoin's worth the same thing. It doesn't matter that you've got your, you know, this Bitcoin versus that Bitcoin. If you have Bitcoin, again, one Bitcoin is just like another. Non-fungible tokens use the blockchain, but they use specific ownerships where your each token gives certain specific rights. And that's the key issue here. So they're not, so they're not the same. So for instance, a non-fungible token uh, could document that you have ownership of a specific piece of art, at least if tied to a contract that states that. You know, it, it could give you rights to let's say, get entry to a concert. It could give you rights to, you know, be able to have, you know, I don't know, make use of some property once a year. There's something, but it's it's where it's not, you know, it's not, it's not like identical to the other tokens on the chain. It is for a specific thing, like that specific painting that you own that we've agreed we're going to document on the blockchain. That would be a non-fungible token. You would own the NFT, but that NFT itself is really nothing. Rather, it indicates right, some other set of rights that are out there. The IRS has issued their notice now, 2023-27, indicating they plan to look through the NFT to the underlying assets or rights that it represents to determine if the NFT is a collectible under Internal Revenue Code Section 408M2. Right? What's the implications of it being a collectible? Well, the first thing is if that NFT that's a collectible is acquired by an IRA or a qualified plan, it'd be treated as a distribution to the beneficiary. So basically, you can't hold these in a qualified plan if the NFT is found to represent a collectible. It also, if you sell the NFT, is subject to the higher 28% capital gain tax rates, right? So you remember the tax rates for collectibles, that's in the mix as well. And there are a bunch of other IRC provisions they'll mention in the notice that make references to collectibles in various structures, various situations. And in that case, they would affect that to determine if this was considered a collectible. Now, the IRS in the notice explains what an NFT is and talks about it as a unique digital identifier that's recorded using distributed ledger technology and may be used to certify authenticity of ownership of an associated right or asset. Uh, yeah, it's basically the blockchain. Right. It's a nice, I don't know if that clarifies it for anybody who doesn't know what the blockchain is. You know, it seems like just to complicate matters, but let's just assume it is a, you know, we have a way of proving ownership entry in a ledger that we basically say, since you control that entry in the ledger, you have ownership of this thing, potentially in the real world or ownership of some other, some rights or whatever, you know, can be various things. Ownership of an NFT may provide a holder with a right to respect to a digital file, such as digital image, digital music, digital trading card, or digital sports moment, that typically is separate from the NFT. It's basically virtually always is. If you've heard about the Bored Apes Yacht Club, that whole craziness, you know, that that's that's tied NFTs tie you to your bored ape that you're in that mix for. Alternative NFT ownerships may provide a, do a holder with a right to respect to an asset that's not a digital file, such as a right to attend a ticketed event, certify ownership of a physical items. For purposes of this notice, the right that the NFT provides or ownership of an asset NFT certifies is referred to as its associated right or asset. 
And we're going to look to what that is and then determine, is that a collectible? And if it is, we're going to treat it as such. Now, as Yaris mentioned, Section 408M1, which is in the IRA section of the code, provides the acquisition by an average retirement account of a collectible shall be treated as a distribution from the IRA equal to the cost of the IRA of the collectible. 408M1 also provides the acquisition by an individually directed account under a qualified plan under Section 401A of a collectible shall be treated as a distribution from the account equal to the cost of the account of the collectible. So if you have a self-directed account inside of the 401k plan, you know, where you basically are able to direct it to go buy these NFTs, if you tell it to buy an NFT, that's going to be a distribution by the plan to you. So it'd be taxable, right? Pending the issuance of guidance, they plan to issue more detailed guidance, but the IRS intends to determine where an NFT constitutes a collectible analyzing where the NFT's associated right or asset is itself a collectible under 408M. And it's referred to as the look-through analysis. Under the look-through analysis, an NFT constitutes a Section 48M collectible if the NFT's associated right or asset is itself a Section 408M collectible. So, you know, basically, we'll be looking at that, trying to figure out. Let's say a gem. Let's say that you have an NFT and it says you own this gem. Now, even though that gem's a physical asset, it is under Section 408M2C, that's considered defined to be a collectible. Gems are collectibles. Therefore, if you have ownership of the NFT that certifies ownership of the gem, that NFT ends up constituting a Section 48M collectible with the affected impacts. Conversely, if an NFT does not constitute a Section 408M collectible, if the associated right or asset is not itself a Section 408M collectible. For example, a right to use, develop a plot of land in a virtual environment generally is not a 408M collectible. Yes, they actually sell that sort of stuff. So, in that case, the NFT provides a right to use, develop a plot of land in a virtual environment does not constitute a 408M collectible. So, pretend land, right? That's not a collectible because it's not in the list. You can take a look at 48M, you'll see a list of things that are collectible. Uh, you know, non-existent land in a non-existent world is not considered a collectible. So, there we go. That's how it works. Now, where things get a little messy is what happens if it is a digital file? Applying that analysis, the NFT associated with the right or assets digital file raises the question, of whether the digital file constitutes a work of art under 408M2A, in which case it would be such collectible. So let's think about the Board 8 Yacht Club, right? You buy the, so you have the exclusive right to this Board Ape, right? That, so it, it, it's your, you can use your avatar, you can use it for whatever, but it's yours exclusive right. Now that Board Ape is really just a digital file. I think it's a JPEG actually, is what you get. Now, we document you own that JPEG, but, you know, that's that file. The IRS says it's not clear if that file constitutes a work of art. And this is not a commentary about the artistic skills of the parties developing the Bored Apes, which will let you have your own thoughts on that, but rather whether such thing would be a work of art. So if somebody created a digital painting, right? You know, they... They, they have there, and you now, right, you know, we know that can be done now, right? We have, you can basically create art on the, or you can create you know, images, create art 
on your, you know, iPad. You can create it on, you know, a laptop, a computer using various methods. So there are various ways you could create this. In fact, we have AI generating such art. Um, is that considered a work of art? That's going to get interesting as to how the IRS would deal with that. They're currently not saying which way that goes, right? Now, what they do say is they currently leave digital files not included in any other categories. So it can't be a rug. That could be interesting. Antique, metal, gem, stamp, coin, or alcoholic beverage. That does not mean an NFT can't tie to that. They do. We're talking, though, about an NFT that only gives you a right to a digital representation, digital file. Though digital files cannot be gems, what's not clear is can they be art? And that's probably a more interesting discussion as to when is a digital file art and when is it not? Uh, obviously, we have people that will, you know, are artists that are electronic artists that are creating what they believe to be art, and they would say is art, and we can argue is art. But the other question is, but a digital file that maybe is just, you know, section 179 of the Internal Revenue Code, if I have a digital file of that, well, that's not really a work of art, but it's still a digital file. And FT could give ownership to that as well. So that's where it gets more interesting. Now, they are requesting comments as part of this before they get their final guidance. For they want to know if the notices done currently provides an accurate definition of NFT, or are there other definitions of non-fungible tokens that should be used in future guidance? And with respect to look-through analysis, are there instances in where there are concerns in applying analysis in which alternative analysis may be more appropriate? Do you see glitches here? What burdens are imposed by making this look-through analysis? How that could work. How might the analysis be applied, this is interesting, to an NFT with more than one associated rights or asset? For example, if one of the associated rights of an NFT is a Section 408M collectible, board, you know, board Ape Yacht Club image, but another is not a collectible. So you have a right to develop land in the Board Apes, you know, in the Board Ape universe. There's like Board Ape World and you can develop land in that, you know, how do we deal with an NFT that gives us both rights? Is it a collectible? Is it not a collectible? Is it partially a collectible? You know, how would you do that? How might the potential for the owner of NFT to receive additional rights or assets due to ownership of the NFT be treated? As I said, what if the those that brought put together the Board of Yacht Club, Board Ape Yacht Club, uh, did decide to add these other rights and that existing owners would get them automatically and, you know, new owners would be able to buy a special version, right? That would get them the Board Ape plus whatever special rights are there. Are there other factors considered when determining whether an NFT is a section 48 and collectible? For example, what factors might be considered to determine whether a digital file constitutes a work of art? Right, art is in the eye of the beholder. Well, I need something better than that. Okay, what factors might be used to determine whether an asset is tangible personal property, particularly in the context of digital files? You know, is it tangible personal property or is it not in that context? What factors might be relevant if the entity's associated right is less than full ownership of an asset? What happens if the right is simply personal usage of And in many cases, that is the right. You know, if you buy that sport moment, uh, you don't really get full use. You, you can't like relicense that to ESPN or whatever. You're able to use that, you know, on your own. You can display it on your own, but you're not, you're not allowed essentially to do anything else. You don't have ownership of that clip. You just have a right to use. Does the application for ADM to an individually directed account under qualified plan raise any issues other than those raised for IRAs? Anything special there we need to worry about? And what other guidance with regard to non-fungible tokens would be helpful?
So obviously the IRS is working on this. Now I guess good news for us is that with the crash in the market for NFTs, um, probably interest in those has dropped dramatically. You know, a year or so ago, the interest had been way higher. Now it's like down to very little, but you never know, it may come back. So they're gonna deal with that. And we still have to worry about if somebody did buy it and, you know, and then sold it off. You know, is that a collectible gain or is it not? Next up, we're gonna talk about the court case, great, greatest common factor versus commissioner, right? This is a case that is a tax court memo case, 2023-39, came out on March the 23rd. This is a case of a C corporation. Greatest common factor is a C corporation owned by, at the time, husband and wife. Apparently now they are no longer married, but at the time they were a married couple and they did that. Now, this C corporation was claiming expenses related to the husband's home office, which he was using, you know, to which they claimed he was using for the corporation was the home office. Now, the corporation did consulting and basically what it had for the year in question was a single contract with the U.S. Department of Defense that required all work be done on an Air Force base, right? It was one of those for national security. He had to come into the Air Force. He had to work in a secured environment. He was not allowed to take any work home. He was not allowed to take any material home, right? All work had to be done on site not allowed to do anything away from the site. That's important to understand about these rules. Now, let, before we get started here, let, let's talk about something that's always in the background if you're going to try to be an employee, because it's a corporation, so he's an employee, and we're gonna try to rent office space to our controlled, to the corporation, to an employer at all. Section 280A C6, specifically says that paragraphs one and three allowing a deduction, the exception to no deduction for you know any expenses that come from property used by the taxpayers or residents. That is actually that sorry, there are no there's no exception to that if you are renting a portion of your dwelling unit to your employer. Right? So if you're using that performing services as employee of the employer and at the same time collecting rent from your employer, you can still have rent. I mean, the employer, the employer could still deduct that rent paid to you, but you can't claim any expenses against that rent. So bottom line, it's just going to be additional income to you. Now, in this case, the taxpayer, as we'll discover, did not have a rental agreement with the corporation, and nothing was mentioned in the case about whether the taxpayer tried to deduct related expenses on his 1040. We're told he couldn't have, but that's a different issue. We also, they never mentioned whether there was an accountable plan attempt to get on here. Sometimes there is an argument to be made that, well, even though you can't lease the property to your employer, uh, as long as you would qualify for a deduction, at least back prior to 2017, as an employee business expense for the office and home, that the employer could reimburse your expenses. Now, whether that reimbursement can include a portion of the depreciation is a whole long and open question. But, uh, you know, because that gets back to, well, is that an expenditure or not? But in any event, you know, there'd be that argument. But we have no mention here of any sort of accountable plan. So we're just going to assume he didn't have one. If you're going to have one of those, they have to be documented. And it's pre presumed he didn't have one. Plus, wasn't a whole lot of evidence we needed here. There were two problems on this deduction. The first one, 
A C corporation may deduct payments made to lease office space from the owners. There's no question about that. But as the court said, there was no evidence in the record indicating there was ever a rental agreement between the taxpayer and his corporation. And there's no evidence that the corporation ever actually paid any money, right, to maintain the home office. They never expended any money, right? So they wrote no checks. He was just trying to, like, you know, write the expenses off on the C-Corp. Now, they don't say how he did that. It could have been he charged a due-to-from officer or whatever, but never did the corporation ever expend cash. Now, this gets down to a standard problem we have with clients when they establish entities. They don't respect them. You know, as far as the client's concerned, you know, well, we're a married couple. We're filing 1040. We own 100% of this corporation, you know, and this corporation does business. We work in it, etc. All of this stuff is really us, right? So then they try to claim deductions or expenses incurred personally on the business return. And that's where it just doesn't work. You have to respect the entity. Clearly here, they didn't respect the entity, they didn't enter into a lease agreement with it, and they never actually had it paying the expenses. Gang, you can't claim a deduction in that scenario. You didn't pay the expenses. We can't even show the expenses are yours. It's non-deductible for either of those reasons would kill the deduction. Okay. And then there was another problem he had anyway, and this would have killed, even if we argue that the uh, Section 62, you know, basically reimbursable, you know, accountable plan program reimbursing employee expenses would work. Uh, Mr. Fry, Mr. Fife, I should say, uh, would not have been able to claim a deduction even back in 2017. Uh, he would not be entitled to home office because the dwelling unit was not used exclusively on a regular basis as a principal place of business for any trade of business of the taxpayer. As noted, during the years in issue, uh, he was forbidden from working on anything for that contract in his home office. You know, he's not working anywhere except on the Air Force Base. And because of that, he couldn't claim the deduction. That would have been treated even if he hadn't incorporated, if he was a Schedule C. Now, right, you know, if, if he was a, you know, Schedule C sole proprietorship, then he wouldn't worry about leasing it to the Schedule C. That's not relevant. He's him. It all works together. Then we are all really one thing. But what we don't get in that case is that, you know, he didn't, he couldn't work at home. He couldn't use the home office. So the home office couldn't be used for any work. So because of that, sorry, no deduction would be allowed. Finally, the shortest guidance we've ever seen, and I've ever talked about in this program, the IRS issued this week. The IRS reminds us very concisely that BBA opt-out can only be done on a timely filed return. This is Chief Counsel email advice, 2023-12001. And it was actually the only single piece of advice really issued by the IRS this week. They issue a bunch of letter rulings, and they may issue some TAMs, may issue some chief counsel advice, full memorandum. And they may have one or two of these emails and, you know, some various other things. But this week, all they had was this one email. And shall we say it was short. Now, one issue we have with email is, is the reason why it's short, we normally only see one side of the conversation. Somebody in the IRS is asking somebody in the chief counsel's office about some matter that does have an impact, that is considered to be some sort of guidance on a tax matter that's being developed internally, which the IRS is now required to make public. 
uh, generally under lawsuits filed years ago by tax analysts. So th this is one of the categories in there. So it is always kind of interesting. Sometimes you get an email and it's like, I would love to have seen the question because I'm having to assume what the real question was. But this case, it wasn't that bad that we didn't see the question. Because in this case, the query is rather obvious, even though never stated. We're never told what the question was, but it's pretty obvious what the question is. And this is the entirety of it. And in fact, if you take away the header and their signature block, uh, yeah, there's almost nothing there. The entire guidance is simply, yes, an election out of BBA can only be made on a timely filed return, including extensions, period. Now, as I said, I wanted to bring this up, not because that is the world's most earth-shattering guidance. We've known that problem. But a lot of people still are missing it and are missing what that means. And they're only finding out when they later have to try to revise a partnership return and discover that they can't do so except by going through a extremely messy process of getting an administrative adjustment request filed, which if you haven't done one, you don't want to do one. We'll phrase it that way. It is a very, very messy project. And they wouldn't have had to do that in many cases had they opted out of the Bipartisan Budget Act rules, assuming they qualified to do so. Now, the Bipartisan Budget Act rules, if you're not aware of them, and they apply to amended returns, to revised returns as well. Not really amended because you can't amend. But they apply to revised partnership returns of any sort as well, if you're subject to these exam rules. And what they say is, when you go back and try to change last year's return, let's say we're trying to change the 21 return, now we've discovered a problem on it. Well, I have to file and do one of two things. Either I've got to get every partner to go back to their 21 return, compute the tax that would have been due, but don't amend your 21 return. Rather, hold that until we file the 23 return now. And then you're going to have to pay that tax due, the extra tax that we computed you should have paid 21, plus penalty and interest with your 23 return. It will be a 23 filing. And it, and it requires a lot of paperwork. I mean, the forms involved with this can get very long. Yes, you can skip huge chunks of, of it, but it's still a pain to do. Had you opted out of BBA, two things would happen. First thing is you could have simply revised the K-1s, given them to the old partners, and they could have just then amended their 21 returns. And, you know, they would have been able to file that amendment and pay the tax right now and stop the running of additional penalties and interest. As it stands, they have no good way to stop it until they're ready to file their 23 return. But in order to opt out, first you got to qualify, and that generally requires you have no more than 100 K-1s issued, that all of your partners are individuals, corporations, uh, estates that held it when they came in, essentially is also part of it, that can be in there. You can't have a, you cannot generally have a, you know, partnership as a partner. You cannot have a trust as a partner, including a grant or trust. And you can't have an LLC, discard entity as a member, which is also interesting. All of those keep you from opting out. But if you can opt out, you have to do so on the original return. Now, we should say the original return or a proper superseding return. Now, original returns, if you didn't file for an extension, that would mean you'd had to make the choice by March 15th. So if you have, let's say you have a partnership return this year you filed, and that partnership return you filed this year, 
did not contain an opt-out for the BBA and you filed it before March 15th, you had not applied for an extension? At this point, if anything changes on the 21 return, or on the 22 return, even right now you discover the change, you're still going to have to go through the AAR system to make the change. Right? You cannot just go amend the K-1s and say, use these to pay return. That's why a lot of us suggest you go ahead and you always extend partnership returns. They're going to have to go under BBA. So at least you have until September 15th to find out if something was wrong and get corrected K-1s out that can be done because you could then follow superseding. Now what they did. If you do not and you don't know what BBA is, you don't know what the rules are for qualifying, you probably need to go look those up and start using them if you can. The IRS has been very shocked that taxpayers who clearly could qualify to have opted out of BBA haven't done so. And I think that's mainly because people just don't know what it is, don't understand it, and don't understand that, I think it's for Schedule B1, that you make the opt-out election on. So be sure you're aware of that. And be sure you're, you know, you're not opening yourself up to being stuck with the BBA with a partnership that doesn't need to be stuck with the BBA. There are reasons why I guess you might choose it. They might like the centralized exam better. And then instead of having them fix the return by changing their 21 return, you could have the partnership just pay a flat 34% on the adjustment. So, you know, there are reasons I guess you might say, oh, we prefer to go that way. But 99 times out of 100, I think you're going to prefer to go without the BBA if you can avoid it. This has been Kernfield Tax Developments for the week of March the 27th, 2023. Kernfield Tax Developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. Uh, if you have questions, you can email me, edzollers at kernfieldtaxdevelopments.com. Get that right. Uh, I also check in on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, uh, and Washington, as well as looking in on Idaho's discussion forums when they post something. So if you have any questions, you can pull up things up there. And if I think I might be able to help, I may respond there. Otherwise, yeah, it's that time of tax season now. Crunch time is coming. Uh, hopefully I'll be able to keep putting these up. But usually I have to skip at least one, if not two weeks, because of, you know, I have clients to play with too, as all of us do this time. And I find that a lot of people who, who listen to this are also not necessarily going to be having loads of time to listen during the uh, last two weeks of tax season. So, you know, we'll take a look, go from there. Otherwise, hopefully I'll see you next week. Certainly, if not, I'll see you right after the uh, 18th for current federal tax development.